0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Marketing Matters on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hello,
1: and welcome back. I'm Americus Reed, the Whitney M. Young Jr. Professor of Marketing here at the Wharton School of Business. We are live. This is Marketing Matters on Business Radio here at the magnificent institution called Wharton. We actually invented the concept of the business school. We create the knowledge that they write about in their cases. Oh, there you have it. I'm so sorry. We went sorry. to Wharton. We saw you <laughs> come a mile away. Well, guys, listen to me very carefully. We are the greatest business school on the planet. Uh, I'm working with a new sound engineer. I'm super excited to work with him. Jeff, what's your last name, Jeff? Amazing. Hey, Jeff, how's it going, my man? Good, good. My name's Jeff Simmons. Jeff Simmons. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. It's a very complicated show here. I've got, I'm pointing to, I am point. I want clips, I want sounds. I want music, I want all kinds of stuff going on, uh, and so sometimes it gets a little bit uh, crazy, but I appreciate you, Jeff. Thanks very much. Uh, guys, listen to me very carefully. Uh, interestingly, we are not only just investment bankers here. I know you think we're all about finance, but we've got so much more going on here at the Wharton School. We're also consultants, strategists, entrepreneurs, real estate gurus, management leaders, and of course, marketers, where marketing is the glue that connects. Each of these areas to their clients. If you like what you're hearing, Marketing Matters airs live every Wednesday from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and is of course replayed several times throughout the week. I'm happy to welcome our next guest to the program. This is Alan Gannett, founder and CEO of Track Maven. Welcome
0: to the program, Alan. Thanks for having me. I now feel like I have to go to Warden after that. <laughs>
1: Well, we absolutely would invite you to come and join us. The Wharton family is 97,000 alumni, Alan, and uh, we're extremely excited to share your wisdom and knowledge with our listeners. And in that vein, I want to start by sort of going, giving some context about your particular journey before we dive into the the fantastic book that you uh, have uh, put out for us called The Creative Curve. But so it could tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got started. What you, what were your passion points? What were your interests? How did you find your way into, into the things that you're super interested? In today,
0: yeah. So I run a company called Track Maven. It's a sixty-person, six-year-old company that works with a lot of brands you've probably heard of, like you know, the MBA and Saks Fifth Avenue wow. and Marriott. And what I we have heard of those them, brands. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> what we do for them is we help find patterns in their marketing data. Mm-hmm. So really start saying, okay, you know, digital marketing is kicking off all this data. Well, what does it tell us about what consumers want, what they don't want? What are the stories we should be telling? What channel should we be focusing on? Mm-hmm. And really getting into that for them. And, you know, the company started because... I was the CMO of a startup, mm-hmm. and I was experiencing this problem where I was trying to be creative and tell these amazing stories. At the same time, I was also feeling all this pressure to be data-driven and to be able to explain what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. But you know, I wanted to be a marketer. I wanted to be able to be creative. I didn't want to have to wear two different hats, and so I realized that there was this big opportunity where marketers are increasingly being tasked with using data, but most of them don't actually want to do it. And so the whole idea for Track Maven was to be that sort of outsourced left brain for hmm. marketers and really help them with those problems.
1: Now, what's interesting about this uh, sort of story, Alan, is the fact that and I've seen it as well when I talk to companies, and you can also comment on this because you've seen it you've been looking at this from a, a very expansive lens for a very long time. Companies often get a little bit afraid of data. Wouldn't you say that's a, that's a characteristic that's, that's often paralyzing for some, for some organizations?
0: Yeah, I mean, how people use data is kind of comical. I mean, some people use way too much of it Mm. to be way too detail oriented. Some people use none of it because they feel like, oh, that's like scary and crazy, and how do I get into that? Mm -hmm. And then a lot of people don't want to do it because they're worried about the transparency, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. a lot of organizations' results have been opaque for a long time. And so, if you're going to start, you know sort of putting a window into the results, like, that can be sort of scary. And so you find that, you know, one of the things we find at TrackMaven is that people are on this sort of data evolution curve, data maturity curve, and they're all over the place. I mean, you're still seeing that, even though obviously marketing is going to become more data-driven, you still see there's tons of organizations that don't even touch it.
1: Mm-hmm. And so they're they're a little bit afraid, but here here's a little bit why they're afraid though, Ellen, and you can comment on this as well. Uh, you know, when I speak to my students in the class, I often say that there's a big difference between data and an insight. And I'll bet Track Maven mm-hmm. helps folks, companies, big brands like the NBA and Marriott, and these wonderful clients that you work with get from the data to an insight, right? Because data, knowledge and wisdom is not the same thing. Would you, would you agree with that?
0: A hundred percent. A hundred percent. You don't want to have data overload. You don't want data to be a liability. You want... Data to actually be useful, mm-hmm. and this is where I think a lot of people get into trouble, where they you know, use data over and over again to say how they did, but they don't use data oh, to learn how to get better. Interesting, different hmm
2: mm-hmm.
1: Because it, how, how, you know what they did—that's that's you know that's backward-looking. To your point, uh, Alan, and that's basically saying that. And I see this a lot when, when I see presentations that are given, that have analyses in them, it's sort of, they're very descriptive to your point. Your point, though, Alan, is to say, listen, don't be afraid of data. You've got to turn data into an insight, but you've got to turn it into, now here's what I should be doing. Based on having looked at this data and generated this insight, Track Maven is going to now tell you, you should be doing X and not Y and things like that. Would
0: you say that's that's a fair? A hundred percent. And that's, that's really what we come in is that, our job is to turn data into an asset for you, not for it to be just another thing for you to do, right? Don't mm-hmm. just use data because someone told you to use data. <laughs> use data because it's actually going to get you somewhere. Mm-hmm. That's really where I think a lot of brands are getting to, but it's taking time.
1: It's, it takes a lot of time. I think you, you make a, an excellent point, Alan, especially with respect to – I love this term you use, the data evolution curve, Uh Tell me about some companies that are way out there on the frontier. Like Track Maven, obviously, is is part of this because they understand you and your colleagues understand that that data is an asset and the great. But what are the great companies that are really like on the cutting edge of 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 data?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's some. You think about like BuzzFeed, for example. Mm. I think it's done a great job of this in terms of using data to both figure out what stories to write about, like seeing what's going viral on the internet, Mm. and then using that as a sort of information feed to. To make decisions. Um, I, see, I see you see this a lot with, I think Marriott has done a really good job of, mm-hmm. they have this social command center they built called M Live, where they're sucking in customer engagement data from across all their brands and all their properties and getting a real-time sense of what's going on in their market and what they have to do to improve and what they have to react and respond to. And so I think you're seeing companies tackle this in a lot of different ways. Ultimately, the thing when it comes to data that you have to do is you really have to come up with a strategy. and It doesn't have to be super complicated. I mean, to me, the data strategy that I think makes the most sense for most brands is 3 Okay. You need to track awareness, engagement, and conversion. It doesn't okay. have to be more complicated than that. Those <laughs> so, can be different systems. Those can be you know, disparate technologies. But if you're a marketer and you're not tracking each of those, if you're over-focusing on one – like if you just focus on conversions because it's all about ROI, which you hear people saying, mm-hmm. well, then you end up you know, trying to get ROI from an audience that doesn't exist because you never built your audience, never mm-hmm. built your brand. And mm-hmm. so I think it's really about doing all three of those if you want to be effective.
1: And so, how should, so when you when you talk to companies and you help them in this journey, help them help push them down this data evolution curve, uh, Alan? How, how do you? I, I guess you assert, you know, where they are in terms of their sophistication, and then you build out kind of a strategy that works yeah, okay. well with, get, with with helping them out in that space. Talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so I think we think about it the, the two big buckets is using data to prove and improve. And so first, you want to use, start using data to prove and show how you're doing, right, start measuring. And then once you have those systems in place, that's when you want to start using data to improve. That's when you want to look at data from, you know, this time last year to see what worked seasonally. That's when you want to start looking at competitors and see what are other people doing and where is that white space. And so I really think it's about this prove and improve idea. But you want to start with prove. You know, get the – Get the plumbing in place first, and then mm-hmm. you can start using it to see what's working for people.
1: And so, as the, as you're figuring this out for people, talk to me a little bit about the challenges, Ellen, that are associated with you know data, but also protection. You know, there's been a lot of conversations about you know, uh, with, with Cambridge Analytica, blah, 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 Zuckerberg, Facebook, these kinds of things where, you know, the, the data is becoming kind of an issue associated with privacy. How does this play into into your world? Because I imagine you're working with some very, lots and lots of information, but also sensitive information from customers, et cetera. What are your thoughts on how you how you go about, you know, sort of dealing with that issue?
0: Yeah, so basically what you're seeing right now is that, is that the basic social platforms are rethinking their data strategies. And the big shift that's happened is that in the past, they made a lot of user-level data available. Now what you're seeing is that that's starting to go away. Mm. So it's getting harder and harder to learn about your audiences through these social platforms. They're still allowing you to you know, pull in any data you want about your own brand or your own marketing or any of that stuff, which makes sense. That's what we focus on. We've never been really strong on the sort of consumer insight side of it. Mm. But I think what that leads to is as a marketer, it's really about owning your own data set. And you know, yes. in a world where yes. everyone's sort of clamping down on data and you know they're creating more moats between it, like you need to own your own data. You need to have your own data. You need to have your own retargeting audiences. You need to have your own lookalike audiences. And so I think as we see things like GDPR and as we see these sort of social networks make it harder to access and transfer data, Mm -hmm. brands have this imperative to start collecting their own data. And if you're not doing that, you're already behind at this point.
1: You're behind the curve because your competitors are probably uh, doing this and and probably gaining a serious competitive advantage over you, right, Alan?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I know of some very large brands that have been investing a ton of money in building up their own audiences and their own um, sets of data that they're using for advertising and retargeting also. Sorts of stuff, and mm-hmm. you know, if you're if you're not already investing in that, you know, you're not you're not winning right now.
1: Interesting, Alan Gannett. Uh, let me uh, reset really quickly, listeners. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with the Guru on taking data and translating data into insights. The company is called TrackMaven. The Guru is Alan Gannett. He is CEO of the company. We're talking about how to do this. Data is an asset. He's telling us. He's literally telling us, guys. That data is an asset, and you've got to get down the data evolution curve as quickly as you can. If you want to join this conversation, one eight four four Warden is the number. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. You might be out there building your company and wondering if you can do this, how to do this. Well, Alan's been doing it. With Track Maven and his colleagues for a long time, maybe you want to call in and join this conversation eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Now, Alan, talk to me about how you. I would assume do you do you work with startups? Like here, I am and I'm just I'm on ground zero. How do you? How do I do this? Perhaps if I'm under resourced.
0: Yeah, so we we actually don't work with startups. We only work with big companies. Okay. But okay. If you're a startup, I think the same big animal pictures applies. Just how you apply them. So okay. I still think at the end of the day, you want to measure those three things we talked about, awareness, engagement, conversion. You're just not going to get into much detail,
2: Mm -hmm. right? You Mm -hmm. know, these
0: big companies are going to get super sophisticated into how they report on these things and how they talk about it. Mm -hmm. But if you're a little startup, like – you know, maybe awareness is just your, you know, Google Analytics data, it's basic mm. social media impression data. Maybe engagement is things like downloads, conversions, you know, social engagement. Mm-hmm. And then conversions is know, ROI, sales, leads, all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it's the difference between um, if you have a really big organization and you have teams for each of these different functions, you all those teams are have metrics and submetrics and all this stuff. I think if you're a startup, you tend to have pretty consolidated teams. So you want to try and keep your metrics to, like, If you're a small start, I'd say, like, nine key KPIs, don't get past that. Mm -hmm. So have three key awareness KPIs, three key engagement KPIs, three key conversion KPIs. And that way, if you're tracking all of them, it doesn't have to be all in the same system. Like, it's okay if it's not interconnected because if all three are improving, like, stuff's working, you don't have to have super complicated piping. Mm -hmm. Um, That is a good place to start it's oh, that anyone can do. You don't need to you know, be a rocket scientist or have a stat degree to do it.
1: <laughs> you're saying like you just got to go out there. You got to dive into that. And what's going to, the, the the logic is the same, right? Awareness, engagement, conversion, how you execute on it and the level of complexity that you can engender as you dive into these three areas of sort of the, the, the customer journey, if you will.
0: 100%. Uh, and, and the fidelity is not going to be as good, but the fidelity doesn't matter as much, right? Um... When you're not dealing with, hundreds of millions of dollars, it's right. okay if you're a few percent off here or there.
1: That's correct. It's a, it, That's what I always try to, to talk about in my class, Alan. That's the idea. Like, what are we trying to – we're not trying to get to uh, perfect truth. What we're trying to get is better than guessing uh, and, you know, having something that we can de-risk and get a little bit closer to likelihood of success. Wouldn't you say following. that's how we think about data? I mean, it's not trying—it's not trying to get to perfection as as much as it's trying to get to practical meaningfulness.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you focus on perfect data, your event you're just not going to be able to have enough time to actually create the campaigns that move the needle.
1: So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: you know, don't become so data obsessed that you forget about your day job.
1: <laughs> That's—I love that advice. Now, I do want to turn now uh, to the book, uh, the yeah. cre- the Creative Curve. Very excited about this, and talk a little bit about you know, why you wanted to overturn this myth of the creative genius. Tell, first of all, tell us tell us the yeah. the premise of, of the book.
0: So the book is called The Creative Curve. It just came out about two weeks ago. Excellent. And the book is all about this idea of whether or not we can actually become more creative. Uh, and I've always been a person who's sort of at the intersection of the right brain and the left brain. Mm-hmm. And I have also always grown up with this idea that creativity is learnable. That's how I was raised, that's how I was sort of taught. And I realized probably about four years ago talking to a lot of marketers, they would say, you know, we talk about something and they'd say, well, yeah, I'm just not that creative. Mm. I have to hire an agency for that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I was like, what do you mean you're not that creative? Like you can, that's a changeable skill. You can get better at it. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I was in this minority. I was one of, you know, a lot of people think that creativity is this fixed thing that you either have or you don't. You're either a... You know, prodigy, or you're not. And Mm -hmm. I am, at the end of the day, still a stubborn guy from New Jersey in my heart. And so I uh, got a little frustrated and thought that, you know, this is a message that we really have to get out there. And we need to get marketers, entrepreneurs, and creators of all types to realize that, you know, when you read these stories of these great creative geniuses, You have to look at them with a skeptical eye and you know let's not take the sort of magazine cover approach. Let's look at the true history and science. When you look at those, you find there's a lot more there. And so basically the book is the first half of the book is sort of a one on one in the creativity history and stories and science. Interesting. Okay. Back half of the book is I interviewed twenty five living creative greats across business, technology, art, oh. music, food. I interviewed billionaires like David Rubenstein, uh-huh. you know, mm-hmm. uh, tech titans like Kevin Ryan, Alexis O'Hanian, mm. and a lot of more folks, and basically explaining from their experiences what you can actually do to become more creative.
1: Interesting. I want you to, to school us a little bit, Alan. Give me your definition of what creative is. What does it mean to be creative? Let's start Let's start so, with that. Let's unpack that a so, little bit.
0: No, this is a great question, because people struggle with this, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you say that we're creative, are like, oh, I get it. And they're like, well, How come when I throw paint on a canvas not creative? But when Jackson Pollock did it it is, right? There's actually something more at work. Right. And so it turns out that academics actually have a really good definition of creativity. Mm -hmm. So there's two types of creativity. There's what they call lowercase C creativity, which I think is a very cute name. Mm -hmm. Basically just creating something physically new. Mm -hmm. And then there's capital C creativity. And this is what we all want. This is creating something that's both new and valuable. Oh. New and valuable. Okay. And the key word there is and because value, well that's really interesting. Because value is a social phenomenon. What right. is valuable is what we all agree is valuable. Mm-hmm. So you get into this whole sort of contextual element around timing and social fabric and recognition and awareness and all these things that starts to unpack and unspool why Jackson Pollock is creative, but I'm not.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: so that's the really interesting part. It's all about the ability to create things that are both new and valuable.
1: Gotcha. And your your argument is that, let me, let me ask you this, Alan, because there, there's kind of this analogous Logic That often exists in the world of, I I guess, maybe even athletic performance, which basically says that, you know, you you see these people who are fantastic at what they do. Right. So I'm going to just take an example out of the sports world. Steph Curry. Right, and you see, he's the best shooter in the in the league. You you guys uh, have worked for the NBA, so I'm sure you're you're very much aware of the NBA's you know uh, promotional assets that they use. But anyway, so Steph Curry, you know, and you, you see this guy like, wow, it's amazing. What you don't see is the 10,000 hours of practice, right? You don't see the laboring to get to master the craft. I think there's a that there's a similar argument here. It's like you have to take on creativity and uh, getting better at it as almost like a mission, uh, a, a way to. To to kind of become like to master something, and you have to kind of you have to believe that it's something that you can in, endow yourself with. Is this correct?
0: Totally, and let's. I want to hit on a couple points there. So. Yeah, I think sports are an interesting example. I think obviously with sports, there's an element of structural just stuff, and like you know, it's helpful to be tall. But even within sports, like <laughs> there's still a huge amount that goes into the mastery aspect, even physical transformation. I mean, there's there are short NBA players. like right? there's someone who's five six who's in the NBA. So mm-hmm. there's there's something more than just the structural component. So there is this element of developing talent, which is so interesting. And you brought up something which is a trigger word for me, which is the ten thousand hour rule. Mm-hmm. And the ten thousand hour rule is one of these most you know, repeated business mantras. It comes from Malcolm Gladwell' book Outliers, and yes. it's basically, for those who don't know, it's that with ten thousand hours of practice, you can become world class at anything. That's the idea.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, this is on one level a sort of optimistic message, and I agree with it. But what's dangerous about the ten thousand hour rule? is that it actually gets the science wrong. So Mm. that is based on research by Professor K. Anders Erickson down at the University of Florida, who's one of the preeminent researchers when it comes to talent development. And I interviewed him for my book. Oh, nice. The quote he gave me is that, you know, Gladwell misread my paper. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Malcolm. We're uh, very sorry.
2: Sorry. The the (laughs) issue is
0: that... I love the (laughs) soundboard. The issue is that... There's, well, there's two big issues. One is that 10,000 hours was the average across skills mm. because some skills have more people doing them, right? Becoming uh. a world-class piano player these days takes about 25,000
2: hours. Gotcha.
0: Right now there's also a hobby. People do digit memorization. There's tournaments. Mm-hmm. So that takes about 400 hours to become world-class, which kind of makes intuitive sense. Like if more people have been doing something for longer, it's going to take more time. Gotcha. So that's one issue. Mm. That's actually not the biggest issue. The biggest issue is that all of his research is about not practice, but actually about deliberate practice. Those are actually two very different things. Mm. See, the difference between practice and deliberate practice, practice is about making something go into your rote memory. It's mm-hmm. about building that you know, muscle memory, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's like you, know, you practice basketball by playing basketball. you practice the guitar by playing a song you already played before. Mm-hmm. Deliberate practice is about taking a big skill – and shrinking it into a really, really small micro skill mm-hmm. and then practicing that skill over and over and over again, but keeping it at the front of your mind, keeping conscious at it, not letting it get into your muscle memory mm. because that's how you actually get better. It's by mastering all the different small skills that go into a big skill. This is why you see you know, the Kobe Bryant's The World do all these drills over and over again. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to practice my... Three pointer from this spot over and over again. It's not just about playing basketball. It's about getting better at all the small parts, that the sum is world class. Mm. And so the 10,000 hour rule is dangerous because it kind of tells people just do more of what you've done in the past and (laughs) you'll somehow get better. And like, no, you have to be very, very thoughtful and deliberate about how you develop yourself. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you can become world class.
1: Interesting. Translate this for me, Alan, into, you know, advice for marketers. So if I'm a marketer and I'm, and I'm saying, hey, Alan, I, I'm worried about this, you know, becoming I, I want to be more creative. I, I'm buying into the premise. You know, tell me about how you would guide me and advise me on deliberate practice on how to do
0: this. So I really think at the end of the day, a big part of marketing is really nailing timing mm-hmm. and knowing what's the right message at the right time.
2: Mm-hmm. In
0: the book, I talk a lot about timing and how to, how to get that And What I talk about is that you can actually be deliberately practicing your timing. And the way to do that is twofold. One, you have to consume more. So one of the things I found in my interviews oh. is that these great creators are actually big consumers of culture. Oh. They you know, learn everything in their space. They read mm. every single book. Mm-hmm. They watch every single science fiction movie, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And this is what allows them to know what is relevant, what's not relevant. Oh, that's and interesting.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: When you talk about creativity, when you talk about things that are valuable, what you find is that when academics actually do the research, what mm-hmm. you find is that the ideas we like – aren't actually the radically new ideas. They're the ideas that are familiar enough to feel safe, but Mm. novel enough to be interesting, right? The first Mm. Star Wars was a Western in space. Harry Potter is the most straightforward orphan story, but there's wizards. Um, (laughs) The iPhone was an iPod with a phone, right? Mm -hmm. We have this notion that creativity and innovation are these big, huge forward steps, but the reality is the ideas that take hold are much more incremental. Mm -hmm. And so, if you want to be able to do that, if you want to master it, consumption is it allows you to know well, what will be familiar? What will be something that people actually know and recognize? So I think if you're a marketer, one of the key things for you to do. Is really think about who your audience is, and just consume lots and lots and lots of information that your audience is experiencing. So, you know, if you're, for example, marketing, you know, sneakers, right? Mm-hmm. You need to be on every single sneaker blog, every single sneaker conference. You need to just be so deep that you start to get a sense of mm-hmm. where are ideas and that familiarity novelty continuum.
1: Very, very fascinating. I think the other cool point about what you're talking about, Alan, is this idea that you're, you're, you're. What what you're essentially doing is you're saying, I'm going to embark on a journey of social listening, and I'm going to immerse myself into this domain. And if I immerse myself into this domain, I'll be exposed to all of these things that create relevancy and value. And what I'm going to be able to do then is hone in on this set of skills to really be able to to do that, to be able to deliberately... Bring out those 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 skills, if you will, creative skills that will be able to uh, to enhance what I'm doing from a creative perspective. Is that is that am I am I at all in the ballpark here?
0: You nailed it. <laughs> Great job. it
1: Excellent. I, I love it when I'm learning there. stuff. I, I love it. The, the creative <laughs> curve. So t- tell me more about the book. The uh, you said the second half of the book is. You know, focused on really kind of applying the, the things, and you and you you did a bunch of really excellent research. Tell us a little bit about the research and how you translated that research uh, so, into these into these applications.
0: So I interviewed these twenty five creative achievers, and what I found that was really interesting was that there were these four recurring patterns I found. Nice that I call them the four laws of the creative curve. That all of them did one hundred percent compliance. Okay. One of them we already talked about, which is consumption. Mm-hmm. I talk a lot in the book about why consumption is so powerful because the familiarity component is important, but there's actually other reasons why, too. The second is that they all engage on, in imitation. You know, we talk about creativity as the radical new, but mm-hmm. since familiarity is such a key component, imitation is actually a really big part of the creative process. And it's not plagiarism, mm-hmm. but rather it's learning mm-hmm. the structures of great work, right? What is the what is the you know, story arc of a great novel? What is the structure of a great song? Learning those structures, those things that have worked before, that's the way that you can then add your own novel twist. Kurt Vonnegut, for his master's thesis, he went out and took all these great novels and actually mapped out the story arcs and found there was four repeating story arcs that appeared over and over again. Mm-hmm. And so what you find is that these great creators are very comfortable with the idea of standing on the shoulders of those who've come before. Mm-hmm. It's usually the aspiring creators who obsess on the new. Mm-hmm. Successful creators actually are comfortable with standing on the shoulder of the familiar. Gotcha. The third element, the third one I talked about is creative communities. So we talk about you know creatives as like, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, these people, these individuals. Uh-huh. But like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, he had five people in that garage. Like, <laughs> uh, Elon Musk had so much money, he hired all these rocket scientists on day one. So we sort of overbelieve <laughs> right. the PR and marketing version of creativity. Mm-hmm. And I talk in the book about the people you need in your own creative community to be successful.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the fourth and final one iterations okay. you know we talk about creativity and we think it's like you go into a cabin somewhere and you you write your great american novel and you only come out once you write dn <laughs> but that's not true mm-hmm. you actually find that creative achievers they understand they're creating for an audience mm-hmm. does they understand that they're comfortable with the idea of actually iterating getting that feedback early and often, and constantly updating what they're doing. And so you know, for marketers, isn't that idea of you know, test that campaign, run those A-B tests, you know, try different headlines, try different things. Don't assume you know everything because your job is to create that resonance with an audience. Mm-hmm. It's not to create something that you like.
1: Interesting. Right. You're again, you're trying to absorb. I love this because in the book, this four step process, which is, you know, what you focus on in the book, finding that sweet spot of creativity is huge. Right. So just to recapitulate for our listeners, consumption, immersion into the into the cultural milieu, if you will, uh, to be able to absorb what is relevant and valuable imitation, building familiarity, as you mentioned, uh, Alan. And that's not copying. That's that's almost like being inspired. In some senses, creative communities where you are you are sort of reaching out and and sort of taking advantage of the synergistic relationships within that network of other uh, sort of inspirational creatives. And then finally, you know, iterating, which is again, I think that's a little bit relevant to this notion that you mentioned, Alan, about deliberate practice as well. Right.
0: Totally, because by doing that, by listening, you also learn future patterns and structures for your timing. And so it all works together, right? You have to do all of it. And that's why I think it's so important. You know, creativity is hard. And I think people have this mindset that, well, I need to find my passion, the thing that I'm good at. And I think that's code word for finding something that's easy on day one. Mm. The reality is nothing's easy on day one. The only thing that's easy on day one is video games because they're designed to be easy on day one. All things (laughs) take work. And Mm -hmm. if you want to do the work, if you're willing to do the work, there's a prize in there, sign that prize is creative success.
1: Very, very cool stuff. Alan, where can our listeners find the book?
0: So you can find it anywhere books are sold and check out thecreativecurve.com for links and you can watch the book trailer, which features my very adorable four-year-old Corky.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Shout out to your (laughs) four-year-old. That was pretty fantastic, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us tonight.
0: Thank you. Bye.